This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. After this week's summits on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, the key question is, will there be real action? And home care is the overwhelming post-pandemic priority for the older generation. But is it on the government's to-do list? But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A group of state attorneys general in the United States has unveiled a landmark $26 billion settlement with major U.S. drug companies accused of fueling the deadly nationwide opioid pandemic. Under the settlement proposal, the three largest U.S. drug distributors, McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen, will pay a combined $21 billion, while Johnson & Johnson would pay $5 billion. The deal was the second-largest cash settlement ever, trailing only a $246 billion tobacco agreement in 1998. And it was the largest unveiled in a multi-year legal effort to hold the industry accountable for the opioid crisis, which has caused more than 500,000 deaths in the U.S. The settlement comes as new numbers show drug overdoses killed a record number of Americans last year, more than 93,000, a 30% rise from the year before. Here in Canada, the numbers are also up, with 5,500 more deaths than expected in those under 65 from substance abuse resulting from extended lockdowns and isolation. Just as many venues around the world are trying to avert a fourth wave by requiring proof of vaccination, famed musician Eric Clapton is going the other way. He says he will not perform in any venue that requires audience members to be vaccinated against COVID-19. He says he experienced a severe reaction to the AstraZeneca vaccine and that he was inspired by another anti-vaxxing musician, Van Morrison. Many fans think he should stick to the guitar. You're probably wondering why I'm dressed like this. Well, it's for my husband's birthday. Dolly Parton really doesn't want Jolene to take her man. This week, the 75-year-old icon surprised her husband, Carl Dean, on his 79th birthday, by dressing up as a Playboy bunny and recreating her 1978 Playboy cover. In a video posted to her Twitter account, the singer, dressed in black, Playboy bunny ears, corset, long gloves with pink gloves and collar, and a silver bow tie. She explained she was trying to think of something to do that would make her husband happy and that he still thinks she's a hot chick after 57 years. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, the government convened two summits to combat hate, one on Islamophobia, 
one on anti-Semitism. The circumstances of the latter gathering were dictated by the alarming rise in hate against the Jewish community. It was mostly closed to the public to ensure the safety of those participating. Former Federal Justice Minister Erwin Kotler now Canada's special envoy for preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism, was front and centre. I reached him in Montreal. How do you think yesterday went? Actually, I think it went uh, very well. We heard uh, from a broad cross-section from the Jewish community of their uh, lived experiences. We heard from young students uh, who spoke about how they uh, were being marginalised and excluded uh, in the university uh, community unless they checked their Jewish identity at the door. And this was particularly with respect to uh, being invited or wishing to be part of uh, progressive causes. We heard of multiracial uh, Jews who uh, were discriminated against both because they were Jewish and they were uh, black and they were women. Uh, we heard from Holocaust survivors who were hearing the echoes of the uh, of the past. It was a very broad section of reflections of lived experiences, and I think the testimony was very moving. At the same time, uh, we had a broad representation from the government, including uh, the prime minister and uh, various ministers who had specific responsibilities with regard to actions to be taken, and they were very much in a listening mold. And I thought that uh, that particular component made for a very important a dimension of both understanding and feeling uh, what anti-Semitism was all about. So you had people sharing their lived experiences with anti-Semitism. You had the government learning from those lived experiences. And then you had undertakings uh, with respect to what needed uh, to be done. One of the things that I've been hearing from Jewish groups is that it has to be followed with concrete action. So what would constitute a concrete action? Well, there are a number of things, and I shared with the group uh, what I called 10 initiatives for a national action plan. Uh, some of them included mandating Holocaust education and teaching about anti-Semitism in our elementary as well as high schools. In other words, the Holocaust is a paradigm for radical evil, anti-Semitism is a paradigm for radical hate, that we needed to enhance the adoption and implementation of the IRA working definition on anti-Semitism. That's the most authoritative, comprehensive international definition that we have. And I, I must say, I was pleased every single government minister spoke about the fact that the implementation of the IRA uh, definition is something that the government is uh, committed to. Can you quickly give us the IRA definition? So the IRA working definition on, on anti-Semitism is one that speaks to both classical anti-Semitism and the new anti-Semitism. Let me just use that as one uh, lens for framing. In other words, the traditional or classical anti-Semitism is the discrimination against, assault upon, uh, denial of the rights of Jews to live as equal members in whatever society they inhabit. The new anti-Semitism is a discrimination against, assault upon, denial of the right of Israel and the Jewish people to live as an equal member of the family of nations. What is common to both forms of anti-Semitism, old and new, is discrimination. All that has happened is that it has moved from discrimination against the Jews 
as individuals to discrimination against the Jews as a people and then reverberating back onto Jews as individuals where, for example, the demonization of Israel ends up also being the demonization of the Jew. The IRA working definition gives illustrations of each and both of those forms of discrimination. It's grounded in equality rights law. It's grounded also in our international legal obligations to prohibit incitement uh, to hostility, discrimination, and violence. So that would feed into the IRA definition with regard to combating incendiary hate speech on the Internet or combating hate crimes. How do you combat online hate? We have the providers are not very good at policing it. And what we've seen in the past is when you get rid of one aspect or one kind of online platform, they simply go further underground to another. Yeah, well, we, you know, speak a lot about what's called a rules-based international order. Uh, Regrettably, uh, with respect to the social media platforms, they've been a a uh, rules-free universe. And so what is needed is legislation, policy, regulation that will, among other things, hold the social media platforms accountable. Europe, particularly in places like Germany, uh, for example, is ahead of us. And what we need to do is learn from best practices in other countries. You know, the, the, all these algorithms which are supposed to protect against hate speech are actually, as the uh, data is increasingly showing, incentivizing uh, hate speech. And so we need to do much more in holding the uh, media platforms accountable. And so it's going to have to be a combination, you know, of uh, government, parliament, social media platforms, of civil uh, society, of users and the like, all working together cooperatively and effectively uh, to ensure that we combat this incendiary hate speech. What was good about the summit is on the one hand, uh, we had the diversity of voices of the lived experiences of the Jewish community. We had the government in listening mode, but we then had the government responding and making appropriate commitments to which they are now and can be held accountable. Timeline? Timeline is, as I would say, as quickly and as efficaciously as possible to have these initiatives as part of a national action plan uh, to be implemented with all deliberate speed, if I can use that metaphor. Okay. Erwin Kotler, thank you so much for being with us. Not at all, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. That was Erwin Kotler, Canada's Special Envoy for Preserving Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Anti-Semitism. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, aging at home is a post-pandemic priority for the older generation, but where does the government stand? You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. The pandemic has changed the way we see aging and our priorities for health care as the virus fades. According to the National Institute on Aging, older Ontarians want adequate home care, 
while the government is focused on building new long-term care homes. And the home care system is dysfunctional, with the public agency that the progressive conservatives promised to abolish still in place while private companies deliver the care. I talked to leading geriatrician Dr. Samir Sinha, who is the NIA's Director of Health Policy Research. Ontarians are basically saying that, you know, there are big gaps in seniors' health care. Really, that, what that focus was on was a few different things. One is having access to doctors, number one, um, and but more, more importantly, having access to enough home and community care and high-quality long-term care services. People feel that all these areas, there's been underfunding um, and there's been a lack of support. And in particular, I think the majority of Ontarians are basically saying we just have inadequate home care. And because we have inadequate home care, this is what largely leads people to having to prematurely go into a long-term care home where in often many cases they rather not go. From personal experience with your patients, even here in Toronto, do you think they, they get adequate uh, home care and do you think it's, it's run in an adequate way? No, I, absolutely not. Right? I mean, it's it's uh, the challenge is it depends even where you live in the city of Toronto, for example. Let alone Ontario. Um, we often talk about a postcode lottery. When people tell me what part of the city they're living in, I was counseling a family just earlier today and saying, I'm not sure what quality of palliative home care services you can get up in Newmarket, for example, because they vary. They significantly vary. We don't have a uniform standardized process. It's not very transparent. It really depends on how much home care is available, um, how much it's, how well it's funded in, in, in your part of the province, for example. And that can even differ in different parts of our own cities, for example. So do we have enough home care? No. Right now, we know across Canada alone, there's over 430,000 Canadians who say they have unmet home care needs. And so then it's no surprise why we have over 50,000 Canadians who are on nursing home wait lists. If we can't meet your needs at home adequately, then how are we going to be able to support you to stay independent in the community? And often what ends up happening is if you're lucky enough then to have family or friends, you know, who live with you, who can actually provide support, that we often burden them with the extra care tasks. But when we quickly burn them out, then, well, you end up in a home. So we know that already, you know, our own, you know, government surveys show us that upwards of one in three people who end up in a long-term care home probably could have been supported in their own homes and in their own communities if we had more adequate home care services available. If I go to the doctor and the doctor provides treatment for me, you know, there's oversight from OHIP, but there is not an entire bureaucracy second-guessing what the doctor says I need. And as long as you had in the Lynn, which the government intended to abolish, so it had 680-something workers in 2018 when they were elected on a promise to abolish it, and now they have 607. So am, am I wrong that they have two separate bureaucracies deciding what the care is, and that takes up a lot more money than actually providing the care? I think one of the problems is that we have a lot of, you know, bureaucracy in the system and, and partly the bureaucracy becomes a product of the fact that, you know, even different partners aren't sharing the information adequately. So all of a sudden you need various, you know, the home care company needs to have their own coordinator, for example, um, because they need to kind of come up with their own care plan because, for example, you know, the the LIN might not actually share with them the information that's needed um, and they have to do an assessment 
and and sometimes you know we don't really have you know a real streamlined um, and an efficient approach in the way that we should. So that's part of the problem that makes things more messy. Um, what you do need to have is a system where there is some kind of independent oversight because there are a lot of you know most of the home care that's provided in Ontario is provided by private companies, for example, and their job is to grow and provide as much home care as they want. So if you if we just left you up to you know the the private home care company Libby and 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 they said well Libby you know what in fact we would send someone for four hours a day when you may have only needed one hour a day you know they're they're really interested in giving you as much as possible because then they just send a bill back to the government there needs to be a bit of oversight but is our system being run efficiently absolutely not you know could it be run more efficient efficiently absolutely could it be could it be made to, it could be organized more transparently absolutely but the problem is is that we have you know a system that's grown in such a way and has been organized in such a way that it isn't as efficient as it can be. And then the problem is, is that we don't have, and then we underfund it as well on top of that, so that whatever care that we are providing is largely inadequate and doesn't allow people to stay at home for as long as possible. So there is a huge amount of work that needs to be done um, to better, not only better fund the system, but better organize it so that we're maximizing the value of our home care system to help people get the right care they need at home. This government also promised to abolish the LINs after that very damning Auditor General's report. What's happened so far is that the LINs have changed their names. So do you think they should go ahead with abolishing these bodies or uh, not? Well, right now, no one really understands what this new model um, is going to be. And uh, I mean, the pandemic didn't help, for example, but, you know, the government, you know, made all these efforts to say, let's get rid of the LINs, for example. But the key is at the end of the day, you, you do actually need someone to actually do the work of organizing healthcare locally and, and, and doing that. And now we have this whole idea of Ontario health teams. So frankly, I actually, I'm, I'm not really sure kind of who's exactly in charge anymore right now or who's calling the shots because I think the system has become even more complicated under this government than actually more, more simple and straightforward to organize and govern. What's the bottom line? We keep chasing our tails going round and round in circles because I don't think um, right now uh, we have a situation uh, where the government is taking a look at the entire thing and saying, what do people want? What makes sense? How do we do this in a much more simple and straightforward way? I think we're just doing a really good job of making things incredibly complex and funding the wrong thing at the at the wrong time. Anything else you want to leave us with? Well, we got to get to work because soon, within 10 years, one in four of us is going to be 65 or better. So better <laughs> get it started laughing. now because uh, I'm, uh, we're all aging, including me. Okay, even including you. <laughs> the rest of us uh, have a head start on that. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Samir Sinha, thanks so much for this. Thanks for having me, Libby. That was leading geriatrician Dr. Samir Sinha. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.